0: Appreciate you being here today. I hope you had a an enjoyable time sharing lunch together. Uh, before I start teaching, I'm supposed to let you know that the first two lessons are uh, are already available, uh, either through our website or on our YouTube channel. And the outlines um, should be attached to the videos so that you can so you can have that as well. So uh, so those are up and running and. Um, and these today and tomorrow will follow close behind. Yesterday we finished book one. We saw an introduction and a conclusion on Sunday evening. Yesterday we looked at book one, uh, a book mostly related to David and, and his story as king. Uh, today I want us to look at books two, three, and four. And you say, well, how can we do all of that in one day? Um, well, here we go. Um, book two begins with a pair of psalms Uh, they really were probably uh, well I say probably they may have been attached to each other as a single psalm originally at some point uh, they were separated out Uh, you'll see why I believe they're attached they're uh, like a song they use the same refrain which sort of ties it all together it's uh, Psalm 42 and 43 are are psalms that that speak to that um, that part of the human experience when, when God seems absent when He's distant and and we have a, a sense of aloneness in the universe. Uh, you'll see, at least in my Bible, uh, Psalm 42 is labeled "Thirsting for God in Trouble and Exile." That's almost redundant because to be in exile is to be in trouble. Psalm 43 just says a prayer for help. I want to read these two psalms because uh, they are, uh, they find the psalmist really facing despair. And even though we've seen the psalms related to David primarily in book one, we get to book two, and the mention of exile here tells us that now we're looking at psalms that were written much later than the time of David. Think about what's happened in the history of Israel since uh, since the end of the reign of David. David's reign was kind of the glory age for Israel. Uh, He's followed by Solomon, who's followed by his son, Rehoboam, and under Rehoboam, the, um, uh, the nation split. Ten tribes to the north depart, keep the name Israel. The two southern tribes take the name Judah, and we have what's called the divided monarchy. Uh, for the rest of the the, New, the Old Testament. In that time, we have Judah, who had a few good kings here and there, but more bad kings than good kings. We also have Israel. Israel didn't have one good king. In the whole history of the nation, every king is is labeled at the end of his career as someone who... Uh, was not pleasing in the Lord's eyes. That explains why Israel uh, disappeared from history about 130 years before Judah went into exile. Their sin accumulated at at a faster rate. But what we have here is a psalmist who's now not just looking back on the days of David, but he's looking back on the history of God's people and it's much darker now than it was uh, when, when they were celebrating David as not just the great king, but the type or the foreshadowing of the greatest king. So there's a different tone in the Psalms in these middle books because they believe, the, the psalmist believed God's word, he made promises about the line of David. He made promises about a coming king. He, he made promises about the survival of his people as a nation and the influence, the global influence that Israel would have. And yet, the historical moment in which these psalmists live seem to be not fitting into that, that storyline. What happened? In Psalm 42, "...as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? I remember these things and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go over with the multitude and walk walk them to the house of God." with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude celebrating a festival. Why are you in despair, my soul, and why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. He starts by looking back. You know, I talked yesterday or the day before about memory being a Christian virtue. The psalmist looks back and he says, I remember when... When, we would, when I would lead the crowds and we would walk to the temple because we were living with the anticipation that moment by moment God was going to meet us there. And now he finds himself with the exiles remembering and saying, how long? When will we be back? When will your presence be heavy among us? We don't meet God in one location like they did. It's different for New Testament believers. But this psalm still speaks to us when we find ourselves surrounded by that black cloud. I really haven't struggled with depression too much uh, in the last uh, decade or so. But the first half of my life, uh, that was a a regular experience for me. In fact, I think with growth and maturity, I got to the place where I, I could feel it coming on. And so I, I, I begin to develop strategies for, for, how to, for how to deal with it. But, but, but that, that experience where God seems to be somewhere else and, and life seems to just be going through the motions. If you've ever had those kinds of experiences, if you've ever prayed and, and thought the, that your prayers weren't, weren't rising above the ceiling, it's helpful to think back. When we're in depression we operate by our emotions and it's important in those moments to operate by our brains instead to remember those times when god was so near that nothing was closer and nothing else seemed to matter those times that can sustain us when he seems far and and others around us don't understand In verse six, he says, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have passed over me. The Lord will send his goodness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you still in despair, my soul? And why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. His memory stirred him to have the confidence that his future was as bright as his past. I remember... Remember, my wife used to always say when she went to college, people would tell her, you know, oh, these are going to be the four best years of your life. And she always was kind of disturbed by that. But she was like, what? So you get out of college and life is downhill the rest of your years? She goes, I don't want to peak in my early 20s. Sometimes we have this idea that the best is behind us, but not if you're a, a person of faith. The best is always ahead of us. That doesn't mean we don't have storms still to pass through. It doesn't mean we don't have challenges still to conquer. But if you belong to Jesus, I promise you the best is still ahead. In this life, we won't see the best. The best is waiting for us. Paul, the apostle, said, there's a crown waiting for me. But not just for me, for all of those who, like me, have waited for the appearance of His coming. You see, we do live in exile to some degree. And yet, there is this verse. Verse 11, Why are you in despair, my soul? Why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise Him for the help of His presence, my God. Psalm 43 just continues. Vindicate me, God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Save me from the deceitful and unjust person, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. They shall lead me. They shall bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you on the lyre, God, my God. Why are you in despair, my soul? And why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. You see, he remembered his past. He had confidence that God would meet him again in his moment. Jesus told us to pray for our daily bread. You know, it's interesting if you, go, if, you did, if you were to do a survey of prayer in the Bible, one of the things that you, might, that you might notice is that prayer is always about meeting with God in the moment. I want you to think about this. We have our past, we have the present right now, and we have our future. The Bible tells us Live in the present. Meet God today. Pray for today's daily bread. Why is that? While memory is a Christian virtue and it strengthens us, when we remember in Christ what God has done in our lives, when we take the Lord's Supper, or when we think about, uh, about the moments that God has really made himself known to us, that's designed to strengthen us for the present. But see, the Apostle Paul said, Leaving behind my failures and my successes, I press on toward the goal, the, high, the, the prize of the high calling. Why? Because there's value to remember God's activity. There's value to be motivated as we anticipate God's activity. But here's the problem when we quit living in the present. This is where we can actually meet God today, is in today. Today. Now, here's what the enemy tries to do. He wants you to live in your mind somewhere else. Because in the present, that's where we meet God. He wants you to live in the past. Because he wants you to lug around the weight of guilt. He always whispers into your ears. In fact, his voice often sounds like your voice. Sometimes you think you're having a conversation with yourself. But it's that voice that says, man, you know, all those skeletons in your closet... All those things that you used to do, all of those experiences that you would be ashamed if people knew about, he loves for us to live in the past because then we lug around that guilt all the time and we can never make any progress. Well, pastor, I I, I, can't, I can't serve at the church. I mean, you have no idea what my past was like. Have you been saved? Has Jesus forgiven you? Has he washed you clean? Has he made you a new creature? All right then let's get on with things. I don't care about your past. I don't care about what's back there. The enemy's the one that wants to keep you back there because he likes to pile those, those chains of guilt on top of you, and you lug those around, always being defined by who you were. He also doesn't mind if you live in the future. What do you think from a supernatural, from a spiritual standpoint, I'm not making any comments here about, about lockdowns and vaccines and pandemics. I'm not talking about what we can see on the evening news. But from a spiritual standpoint, what the enemy has done in our generation over the last two years, is he has made us absolutely scared to death of our future. See, if he can get us to live in the past, he can get us locked down by guilt. If he can get us to live in the future, He can absolutely wreck our minds with worry and fear. Where's God? Well, He's in the past. If you're saved, He's he's wiped that out. Where's God? Well, He's in the future because He's guaranteed how your story ends. But where do you meet God? Right here. In this moment. And moment by moment, He's here. That's why the psalmist comes to this verse. Why? Why are you in despair, my soul? Why are you restless within me? I can remember God's good acts. I know God's good promises. But right here is where I find the help of His presence. Well, book two ends with Psalm 72. Now, what's fascinating about Psalm 72, it is a psalm that was composed by Solomon. So again, it was written after the time of David. Now, we're not to the we're not in this psalm, we're not in the exile, but this psalm is a poem that echoes what will show up in many of the uh, in, in many of the passages in the prophets about the messianic kingdom. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I listed those there on your outline. Uh, if you go to Isaiah 11, Isaiah 45, chapter 60, and also Zechariah 9, you'll find echoes of, of what you see in Psalm 72. Let me, just, let me just read some of this in Psalm 72. Um, let's see here. The reign of the righteous king. Give the king your judgments, God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Okay, let's stop right there. You remember that in Chronicles, when when Solomon follows King David, God comes to Solomon and he says, listen, because I want to honor your father who who walked with me, um, ask what you will and I'll give it to you. It's a remarkable moment when, when God comes to Solomon and says, tell me what you want. I, I'm gonna do something for you because I'm gonna honor your father through you. And Solomon makes an, really a pretty incredible request. He could have asked for military might or political security. He could have asked for wealth or, or long life. He could have asked for a lot of different things but it tells us in, in those chapters that when he made a request from God, Solomon asked for the wisdom to rule well and, to, and, and, to, and, to, and because he, he wanted to rule his people in a godly fashion. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, that story. This verse looks back to that moment. Let me read it again give the king your judgments god and your righteousness to the king's son solomon is talking about himself he's the king now but he still sees himself as the king's son verse 2 may he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice i love that what he's saying is the thing he wanted most was to be a good king that the people of god would prosper because he was the right kind of person I have a man in the church who uh, it's become a little bit of a joke, but it's really not. Every time we talk, every time we cross paths, he has a charge for me that he reminds me of as we part, part company. He always says, Pastor, don't screw this up. <laughs> and it's become a little bit of a joke because it's gone on for years But the fact of the matter is I think about that sometimes. Because you are wrong if you think that anything that has happened at Evergreen is because I'm the pastor here. That is not the reason. God has decided to do something here. He's found a people whose hearts are are passionate about following Jesus, about having a life of faith that they're serious about, about swimming upstream, against the the tide of our culture. And when God finds that, he loves to put himself on display, not because he's trying to, to get recognition, but because he's found a people hungry for him. Seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He makes himself available to those who seek after him. And honestly, that's what's happening here. I try and encourage people who are who are on the fringe, who are, are tending, but they haven't really haven't really bought in yet. Listen, you it, it, it's in selling out to following Jesus. That you really begin to encounter God because he makes himself known to those who seek him with all of their heart. Well, my job. is not to make this happen. My job is to try and eliminate hindrances to what God wants to do here. In other words, I don't grow the church. I just try and keep from screwing it up. (laughs) That's what Solomon is praying here. He wants wisdom because he knows it's not really about him, even though he's the king. What he wants most of all is for the people of God to experience God. The, the, these opening lines ask God to give the king wisdom so that his justice will be like refreshing rain and contribute to the prosperity of the people. Look where he goes from here. Verses 1 and 2, he's looking back on that moment in, in, in First Kings uh, chapter 3, and here he says, May the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun shines, as long as the moon shines throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days as well as an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Asking again for the king, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. May the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring gifts. May the kings of Sheba and Saba offer tributes. And may all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. You say, well, that sounds a little like he's uh, asking something for himself. No, Solomon is not saying I want all of my enemies to bow down to me because I'm the great king. He's saying, I want all of Israel's enemies to bow down to the king of Israel because our God is on display. Solomon is almost the last king that still had a sense of global destiny for Israel. Israel's role in the world was seen in the promise that God made to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so when the enemies of Israel are defeated, when kings bow down to acknowledge the king of Israel, they are acknowledging the God of Israel because Solomon saw himself simply as a representative of that God. And within his own people, there will be peace. There will be vindication for the afflicted, the children will be provided for. The oppressor will be crushed. Now verse 12, "...for he will save the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and he will save the lives of the needy. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, And they are to pray for him continually they are to bless him all day long may there be an abundance of grain on the earth on top of the mountains its fruit will wave like the cedars of lebanon and may those from the city flourish like the vegetation of the earth may his name endure forever may his name produce descendants as long as the sun shines and may people wish blessings on themselves by him may all nations call him blessed blessed be the lord god the god of israel who alone works wonders And blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Think about that. How do we know that the king is not really asking for stuff for himself? Because his motivation is outlined in verses 18 and 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. this psalm is is unique in the collection of psalms in that it is one of the clearest indications of Israel for a season understanding who they were meant to be it is there is some value here for us as New Testament believers, to be re-inspired, to have a global outlook on our faith. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, he said, baptize people and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. He said, he said when power comes to you through, through the Spirit, You'll go to Judea, the city that you live in, to Judea, the surrounding area, to Samaria, the next nation over, and then to all the nations of the earth. I think part of the decline of Christianity in America has come with the decline of a global worldview within American Christianity. Uh, We're all about missionaries. I mean, we're happy to have missionaries. But frankly, we, we'll send what amounts to, even, even though we, we as Southern Baptists have, have shared in, in, in about 5,000 missionaries around the world, when you're talking about seven or eight billion people, we've we really just sort of scattered a handful here and there. That's why we try and go. The pandemic has, has, has hindered that, but, but there's some value to, to being in places around the world where we share the gospel, where we meet people. And if there's no other value to that, you say, I've heard people say, well, you know, short-term mission teams don't really make that much of an impact. Yeah, but you know what they do? You come home and you never see the world the same way again. And you begin to pray. And you're now not praying for some random country. You're praying for a place where you've met brothers and sisters, where you have family in that nation and it revolutionizes the way you think about the Great Commission. We're content to sort of leave missions and ministry over there. The fact of the matter is, the lesson you learn when you go over there, the lesson you learn is, if I live here, this is my mission field. Do you know, I, I, I sat in the house of a pastor in uh, Calcutta, India one time, Calcutta is, is truly an awful city. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being honest. It's dirty and it's noisy and it stinks and, and it's crowded, crowded beyond belief. And I sat in the, the home of a pastor and he was talking about the street where he lived on. Now don't picture your street because it wasn't like that. It was a dirt street with hovels, if I could use the old-fashioned word. But he went down. He pointed, and he went down house by house, and he told me the names of his neighbors and he told me their spiritual condition. That that man, uh, he's hostile to the to the gospel, and he beats his wife because she's a follower of Jesus. But but we're praying for him, and I, I I talk to him whenever I get a chance, and. And that house, uh, they're both Hindus, uh, but they're nice, and they're, they're open for conversation. And he went down, and he not only knew their names, but he knew their spiritual conditions. And honestly, I walked out of his house about an inch tall, thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm, I'm looking at my, ha- my street that my house is on. And I'm thinking about the conversations that I've had or that I have not had with each household. Certainly not enough to know their spiritual condition. So you know what I did when I came home? I started going outside and trying to have conversations with people. They're not evangelistic targets. They're human beings that Jesus died for. I can't let them be extras in my life movie but that came out of a mission experience here solomon understands that the reason israel needs to be blessed is because they are meant to be the people who bring that good news of the one true god to the nations around them they lost that by the time of jesus in fact Hundreds of years before Jesus, they'd already lost it. Israel had developed this real exclusive mindset, and, and that's, why, that's when the Messiah began to develop in their minds this image of a military conqueror who would show up one day and defeat all the other nations so that Israel would be the top nation in, on the earth. Israel wasn't meant to be the top nation on the earth. Israel was meant to be the nation that distributes truth. And the whole earth would be blessed by that. Now the gospel is extended to the Gentiles. We find ourselves not a replacement for Israel, but we've been grafted into the tree that is Israel. We share the roots of this story. Abraham is our father, not not racially or or ethnically. uh, But the New Testament says, you know, God could make sons of Abraham out of of stones. But we are descendants of Abraham by faith. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And his mission to be a blessing to the whole earth is our mission. The Great Commission is simply the New Testament restatement of Israel's mission in the Old Testament. So here's a king who understands that and he calls for God. He wants his rule to be extensive so that other kings will honor him. Not because he's all of that, but because in honoring him, the, the God of Israel is seen and put on display. In those last verses, I think verses 15 through 17. He prays for the king to live long and for the nation to prosper. Again, because the nations are blessed through that. The final line of uh, of verse 17 is the statement. It harkens back to Abraham. May all the nations call him blessed. That is a recognition that what God was doing in Solomon and through Israel and eventually Judah was related to the fact that it was all part of God's plan for the nations the gospel has always been global well the end of book two it finishes with this verse uh, verse 20 the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended now that's an interesting um, closure uh, and, and I don't know when that um, when that came into the text, or, or if it was if it was original, uh, because it's it seems to be a very self-conscious way of acknowledging that we are now closing book two. Book one has been about David. Uh, book two has been this process of, of those who are after David, but are looking back for the promises that God has given to Israel to be fulfilled. And it's appropriate that Solomon's Psalm 72 is the, the defining piece of that book. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. With Psalm 73, we start book three Uh Book three runs from Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. It also finishes, uh, in fact, that's where I want to go, Psalm 89. This book finishes also with a promise that, uh, that God would never abandon the line of David. Uh, this psalm is written by uh, Ethan the Ezraite. So I don't know who that is. Well, I don't know who that is either. But... Um, but, you know, I would, uh, I'd, be, I'd give something to have my name show up in the inspired text. And so this is somebody that God used. But I want you to, uh, again, I'm using the New American Standard Version, the 2020 edition. Uh, the heading of Psalm 89 is very interesting. The Lord's covenant with David and Israel's afflictions. Psalm, I mean, book three uh, follows... Book one that tells us about the historical King David, and then book two that that the promises of God are are still good. But but this business of the exile, this really wreaks havoc with how to understand these promises. And so what we find in Psalm 89 is the the psalmist is still reflecting on God's promises, and yet now... uh, he's got to consider the tragedy of Israel's exile. I mean, the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but how does that promise line up with Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians and the downfall of David's line? The kings ended when they were carried off into Babylon. How to make sense of it? Psalm 89, this covenant that that god made with david uh, i mentioned it on sunday night when we looked at psalm 2 it's recorded in second samuel chapter 7 and it promises him an enduring dynasty and a special relationship with the one who would eventually be the king the promise was that he would come from david's line god said he would be like a father to him and he is like a son to god okay that's all in in second samuel chapter 7 Now, look at Psalm 89. I will sing of the graciousness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. For I have said, graciousness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant. This is God speaking, or this is God being quoted. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build up your throne to all generations. Well, the psalmist believes that, but he just can't make sense of how it can happen. It looked historically hopeless. Verse 5, The heavens will praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly to the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all those who are with him. Lord of armies, who is like you? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Now that's the faith of the psalmist. He's unshaken in his understanding of who God is, he has absolute confidence that God's word is worthwhile, that it's trustworthy. But drop down to verse, let's see, verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor will the son of wickedness afflict him. But I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my favor will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. Remember, horn is a a symbol for power. His strength or might will be exalted. I will also place his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my favor for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons abandon my law and do not walk in my judgments, which in fact is exactly what happened, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their wrongdoing with the rod and their guilt with afflictions. But I will not withhold my favor from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever." and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and a witness in the sky is faithful. Verse 46. How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my lifespan is, for what futility you have created all the sons of mankind. What man can live and not see death? Can he save his soul from the power of Sheol? Where are your former acts of favor, Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, Lord, the taunt against your servants, how I carry in my heart the taunts of all the many peoples with which your enemies have taunted, Lord, with which they have taunted the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 89 is a fascinating psalm. It's the closing psalm of book three. It finishes the way all the books finish. Blessed be the Lord forever. But it doesn't finish with that blessing of the Lord before the psalmist is just brutally honest with God. You made promises to David. I believe those promises. But I cannot for the life of me figure out how this is going to work out. It seems to be hopeless. The best use of Psalm 89, I think, is because we now live in a generation where we say, man, the Bible tells us that God wins. The Bible tells us that Jesus comes back, that evil will be defeated, that, that, that eternity will be set in, into motion and, and, and the earth will be a new earth and the heaven will be a new heaven, that things will finally be made right. But I got to tell you, I got to be honest, I can't see how any of that's happening. Some days I can't even see a hint that it's possible to happen. The psalmist is being honest, and frankly, when you pray to God, you might as well be honest, no matter what it is you're feeling, because He already knows. You know, Sometimes I think we, we, we don't pray because we don't want God to know that we're, we're struggling with our faith. He knows. At least the psalmist here, he's very much a role model In the fact that he both confesses his confusion, his concern, that it's not turning out the way he's been led to believe that it will. But at the same time, he is doubling down on his faith. God is not just God, he's a good God. He is a God whose word is true. He is a God whose word can be trusted. We can stand on it. And so I love this psalm because of the balance between, between a faith that you just lean into and the reality that I'm struggling to see how this works. You know, it's not really a bad place to be to find yourself in the presence of God saying, Lord, I don't understand. I really don't. I don't know why things are happening the way they are. It seems like the world is literally racing to hell. But, blessed be the Lord forever. Think about the story of Job. You want to talk about a guy who faced an unexplainable crisis and what his wife his lovely wife (laughs) with that real encouragement that comes from a godly woman being in your house she goes listen why don't you just curse God and get it over with I mean why don't you just curse him and let him strike you dead at least you'd be out of your misery and this guy who is the, the pinnacle of, of, of everything bad you can imagine happening, happening. He makes one of the most powerful statements of faith recorded in the entire Old Testament. Do I accept good from the Lord and not problems? What kind of faith is that? That's the very kind of faith that Satan accused Job of having. Have you considered my servant Job, God says, with real evident pride. And Satan goes, ah, he just serves you because you give him stuff. He just honors you because you bless him so much. Take away his blessings and he'll curse you to your face. Except at this moment when the blessings were removed and all that was left was faith Job in front of a cosmic audience declared that even in his worst days God was still God and that was enough man we got to find that faith we have to find that rock-solid place to stand Because if we let headlines and news reports and political pundits shape our souls and our minds, we will be in in a bad place. It's okay to tell God, "I, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I bless you because you're still God. Now, as this struggle moves from book three to book four, we still believe that Israel is, is the chosen. We still believe that God has a plan. His promises are still uh, trustworthy. And yet we don't know how this is going to work. It's interesting that book four uh, is really designed to respond to the crisis that we find at the end of book three. That's why the first Psalm of book four is Psalm 90. So, well, you know, we're, We're after David, and we're after the exile, and and we're in this real crisis of of not knowing uh, how the future king, the coming Messiah, is going to work out. Why in the world would we go all the way back to Moses? Moses is at the beginning of the story. And yet, showing you that Psalms is not just a random collection of poems, but it's got a structure to it, because of the question left hanging in the air at the end of book three... Book 4 starts with Psalm 90, which is the prayer of Moses that is recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 33. In fact, if you put Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 90 side by side, you'll see uh, a virtually identical flow. It's been lifted from the Torah and placed here. Well, why? What was the prayer of Moses? Psalm 90 is the is, is, coming out of Deuteronomy 33 Uh, is the prayer of Moses describing his plea for God to show mercy after that whole unfortunate golden calf incident. They went back to a moment in Israel's history when it seemed like this whole covenant idea was in real danger. Israel had become so unfaithful, they had actually taken the gold that had been thrust upon them as they were leaving Egypt, gold completely provided by God after he did the 10, the ten plagues and, and the, the Egyptians were saying, here, take it, take our gold, take our jewels, take everything of value, just get out of here, just leave us alone. It's not, it's, it's a matter of weeks Between leaving Egypt, burdened down with with wagons full of treasure. They were slaves, remember. They left with all the treasure of Egypt. They go. They're chased by the army. They cross miraculously through the Red Sea. God provides for them every step of the way. And then Moses goes up on the mountain. He's gone for a, a few days. And they could not have done anything more offensive to God than what they did they took resources provided by God and they fashioned an Egyptian God and they danced and they worshiped and they bowed down to declare their loyalty to a false God listen Moses's prayer is a cry that God will not reject His people and turn away from His promise. It was that dangerous a moment in the history of Israel. So here we have Israel in exile as an act of discipline, as an act of judgment, because they have once again turned to other gods women from other nations they brought those gods with them they've completely compromised their ability to be a nation that puts the one true God on display for all other nations to be in effect what they had become was just one of the other nations there was absolutely no distinction between Israel and the nations around them it was the worst thing they could have done and so in that moment when you have these promises of God that you're trying to hold on to, it's very natural to go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy and find Moses praying that God in that low point of Israel's faithlessness, that God would still prove Himself faithful. And to a nation now in exile, they go back to that text with the same prayer, that God's Word would still carry itself out to the fulfillment of His promise, even though Israel was not faithful in the covenant. Verse 1, oh, we're, we're running out of time. Verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or You gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn mortals back into dust and say, return you sons of mankind for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or like a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass that sprouts anew. Verse seven, we've been consumed by your anger and we've been terrified by your wrath. You have placed our guilty deeds before you, our hidden sins in the light of your presence for all our days have dwindled away in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your graciousness that we may sing for joy and rejoice in all of our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us in the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. May the kindness of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. You see, he starts by admitting. This is where you have to begin. He admits that they are completely in the wrong this is all our fault lord we have sinned but father show mercy extend grace restore us to a people who once again find our pleasure in you restore us to a people who see your work confirmed in our lives, our children able to see you from generation to generation doing your mighty works among us. I love verse 17, may the kindness of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. This is a prayer that comes from a people who who, who clearly understand that they have completely screwed up. They have no claim on God at this point except the claim that God made a covenant with his people he chose them not because they were worthy he chose them because he chose them and they cry out on the basis of nothing else in in other words they're saying lord um, we don't bring anything to the table here but we're your people as ugly as we might be right now. Don't throw us under the bus. Don't kick us to the curb. Give us the grace to be made whole again. Draw us back to Yourself. Bring us to the place where we can once again be the people that You've called us to be. Well, this is a cry to reconcile God's promises with the sins of Israel. Only God can do it. And the only hope that God will do it is the fact of the covenant and His promises to David. In Psalm, let's see, in this, this, third, this fourth book ends with Psalm 106. This psalm is, is too long for us to read. But um, in Psalm 106, what we have is a, a, an unknown psalm, I mean a, an unknown author. This psalm, if you read it from start to finish, it's, it's too long for us to read here. But it is a review of Israel's history, serving as a reminder not to repeat the sins of the past. You see, we left book four, we left book three with the with this question, how can God's promises actually unfold, because Israel has compromised the covenant by her sin? Book four is this recognition of Israel's sin and a determination to repent and to be made right, so that God would be so that God would complete what He's promised. And verse one, uh, Psalm one hundred six ends this. Uh, this book, because Israel is at the place now, this psalm reviews their whole history. And it's meant to be a corporate, uh, I think because it's written in in stanzas, I think that this was meant to be uh, sung in a corporate setting, all of Israel together, so that they would review the sins of their past and, be, and have a fresh determination each time to not go there again. Remember I said living in the past, that's where Satan wants you because he can wrap you up with guilt. But once you, once you see your past through the eyes of Jesus and you realize that you've been forgiven, now remembering your past becomes motivation for your future. It doesn't weigh you down. It doesn't drag you backwards. Here, the first three verses is a call to praise. That's a typical way to start. But, but let me read verse 4 and 5 real quickly because it's a cry out to God to remember the one who's, who's offering the prayer, which I think typically would have been the nation of Israel when they read this together or sang this together. Remember me, Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation so that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the joy of your nation, that I may boast with your inheritance, Verse 6, we have sinned like our fathers. We have gone astray. We have behaved wickedly. And then it starts with our fathers in Egypt. And from there, that recognition, verse 6, that we have participated in, in this heritage of sin. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. And he, and he recites the history of the Old Testament. Uh, go, to, go to verse, um, let's see, go to verse. Well, just pick up at verse 37. He's talking about when they came into Canaan. Um, They served the idols of other nations. It says, They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was defiled with the blood. Listen, this psalmist doesn't pull any punches. When he's reviewing the history of Israel from the standpoint of their unfaithfulness, he goes right for the jugular. Because frankly, the the worst part of Israel's time in Canaan was when they accepted and practiced the child sacrifice of the false gods from the nations that surrounded them. I mean, there's a place in Scripture where God is talking about how his judgment was on Israel because they sacrificed their children. And then God says this cool thing. He says, that's something that never even dawned on me to ask. They offered to false gods their own children. Who does that? I never even contemplated such a horrible thing. Verse 40, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He loathed His inheritance, so He handed them over to the nations. And those who hated them ruled over them. The enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. He's talking about the times that they've been defeated in battle, uh, leading up all the way to uh, to the exile. Verse 44, nevertheless. Man, let me tell you, any time the Bible says nevertheless, or but, or yet, it means that whatever you've just finished reading, the story's not over. Nevertheless, he looked at their distress, and when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his mercy. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people shall say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Folks, the the, the Psalms have some real low points. But frankly, if we had a complete documentation of everything that you've done since you were four years old, you and I would have some pretty low points too. But even... With a nation scarred by their repetitive sin and loss of faith, it says that God remembered his covenant for their sake. And I love this phrase, and he made them objects of compassion. That is, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Listen. The Gospel is all the way through the Psalms. But when you get to Psalm 106, it's an unmistakable affirmation that there is no sin in your past big enough To make you useless to god or to or to prevent you from being an object of his compassion what an awesome god we serve father thank you for your word for these psalms the lessons of these middle books father as we approach book five I pray that this study will, be, will have been profitable. And when it's all said and done, Father, if nothing else, we will walk away with a grander appreciation of Your Word and a higher opinion of the God that we serve. Father, let Your Word be implanted in our hearts and let the living power of Your Word make us fruitful as Your people. Father, we live in the hope that we become fruitful from your word and that we become bold from the confidence of the coming king. Father, do not let the headlines and the news stories of our day turn our eyes from the trustworthy promises of a God who keeps his promise. Father, thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.